Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now, let's get wild. Hey everyone, welcome back to Conservation Unfiltered. Sitting here again with Talon. How you doing, Talon? Good, Jason. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, what's, uh, what's new and exciting in your world? Well, just like always, we talk for 20 minutes before we start this <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I just got done telling a really exciting story about the youth day of trout here in PA. Yeah, we're going to so have, we, we, we don't have time. That might um, be a whole other podcast. Yeah, we'll we'll like revisit just that in the future. An entire podcast of, yeah. of my experience at uh, North Park on the first day of yeah, youth we'll, trout season. We'll revisit that <laughs> at a later date. But it was cool, man. Fishing with your kid is probably one of the coolest things. Yeah, and that was yeah. the first time for you, right? That was the first time. And, like, on the way home, my wife was running while we were doing it. Like, you know, she gets in the truck. She's like, so what would you do today? Because we always, like, ask them. You know, teachers like that. Yeah, yeah. Recall, being able to recall a situation. Yep. And uh, so I'm like, oh, what would you and dad do? And she said, dad and I fishing. I'm like, oh, that's the best. That was it. That was worth it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, you sent me that picture whenever you were done yeah. uh, the, of you and him looking at the rod and playing with the rod. And it's like, yeah, it was cool. Know, uh, kids aren't in the any near future for me, but they will be at some point here. And that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm excited for, you know, exposing yeah. them to that stuff. Whether they choose to pick it up forever. That's yeah, awesome. and that's what we didn't. It is what it is. Didn't right? want to force it, you know, like we did, we prepped them like, hey, we're going to go fishing. Do you want to go? And blah, blah, blah. So then like you talk about it more. And then he's like, yeah, well, let's go fishing. So when we do, we made sure we went to like the park that it was fun. You know, that if he didn't want to fish, that he could went and did the fun stuff that he likes to do, going down the slides and stuff like that, and just kind of associating fishing with fun. And, you know, that's what I remember fishing as, like, it being fun. We didn't always fish, you know, yeah, we just I, did fun I don't, stuff. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember just getting a canoe and, and troll, and yeah. you're, you're there all day. Yeah. So... Needless to say, I don't fish a whole lot right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, that's the idea that we're going with anyway. And, you know, he seemed to like it and said he wanted to go again. So that's where I'm going as soon as we're done with this. That's great. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. The fact that he wants to go again. Yeah. I mean, that, that's huge. Yep. That's great. Anything else out there for nah, you? That's about it. That was, that was revolved. Or that was our whole weekend, really. You know, just that's a good weekend. Yeah. That's a good weekend. Yeah, other than that, just your typical, you know house stuff that you gotta do yeah well at least you got that part of your weekend because yeah. i did nothing but house stuff yeah and, and church and family stuff all weekend so you have a kid it's a good excuse to go fishing yeah i mean eventually <laughs> <laughs> eventually but uh yeah it, this is i can't wait for him to be an excuse to go hunting more yeah that, that'd, that'd be great say, hun oh he, yeah the kid i can't say no the kid wants to go out in the woods what yeah. do you what do you, you're gonna deprive him of that i'm really hoping that my kid <laughs> wants to hunt so that i can sort of say like, oh no i gotta take him to camp we yeah. gotta we gotta go hunt he yeah. wants to go could you imagine yeah. if, if you weren't allowed to do something that you wanted to do you know like yeah that's, i'm hoping for that too yeah but it'll be eventually but yeah but whatever whatever makes him happy right yeah this time of year is a little tough sometimes to get outside yeah. i mean it's anything cabin fever man it was just nice to get out yeah yeah i mean i did i did spend some time outside i, I got got to shoot my bow bow's all fixed mm -hmm. up and so i've been i spend a you know i shoot every day basically yeah. um at least you know one or two arrows type deal because that's with hunting the first arrow is the only one that counts right so i really only try to shoot one or two yeah, or something like that every muscle day. up though too you know? right so saturday I, I did a little extended deal probably shot for about a half hour 45 minutes so that was nice you know it's just in the backyard but it's nice to be out yeah. there and, and shooting and just you know 
get in the mind, sort of, yeah. right for and just being able to be outside. Just being able for to be outside. Yeah. Of time. yeah, I mean, this time of year is. is I feel tough. this winter was rough here. It was rough. It was very cold. Yeah. It was when it wasn't cold. It was raining. Yeah. Uh, so it was tough to be outside. Yeah. Uh, this winter, so definitely looking forward to to getting back out there. Mm-hmm. So today on the podcast, we got a, a pretty high-profile guest. Well, can in comparison in to com- our profile. In comparison <laughs> to our profile, yeah. Uh, and honestly, I mean, I. I would feel when we say this name, a lot of people are going to know um, who he is. I mean, he's he's a pretty high high profile guy. He's in a high profile uh, organization that he works for. So, yeah, it's uh, exciting. I'm excited. Yeah, I, I just have somebody that wants to talk to us in the first place yeah. instead of us just talking to each. Other. Yeah, that's that's big. Uh, the other thing too that, that gets me excited. Uh, I mean, I'm sort of geeking out because of who we're talking to, but I'm also real excited about what we're talking about. Uh, with Arbor Day coming up, uh, so we'll be talking about planting trees and and what kind of trees to plant and things like that. So uh, to keep the suspense down, who we're going to have on here is uh, Lindsey Thomas Jr. He's uh, a communications director for the QDMA. Uh, so we'll have him on, and he'll be talking us through planting trees, and uh, that's something that that I think we both do quite a bit. Yeah, uh, do a lot of tree planting. I know uh, I keep some records of the ones that. That my family plants up at the cabin. Uh, we're over 1,600 trees now oh, wow. planted. So um, now, of course, not all of them are growing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's something that um, that we do a lot, and I've really tried to do a lot of research for. So I'm excited to to talk to him personally and, mm-hmm. and find out some information on that. Uh, yeah, me too. So let's uh, not beat around the bush anymore. Why don't we just get him on the line? Let's do it. All right. This is a good time to take a quick break and mention one of our partners, SOS Gear. As you know, SOS Gear is a small business out of Montana who specializes in paracord products. Today, I want to highlight the rifle slings Chelsea makes. These things are tough. Available in 32 to 48 inch lengths, these slings are made to last. They come with Uncle Mike swivel attachments, which are also known for their durability. There are a wide range of colors to pick from, so you can make your own statement. Check out all the products she's made over at her Instagram, SOSGearMT, or her Twitter, at SOSGearMT. You can order a rifle sling of your own at SOSGearMT.com. That's SOSGearMT.com. All right, and we're uh, talking to Lindsey Thomas Jr. right now. He is the editor of Quality Whitetails Magazine and the director of communications for the Quality Deer Management Association. How are you doing today, Lindsey? I'm good, Jason. How are you guys? Well, we're doing good. We're uh, real happy to be talking to you uh, now. Uh, we've been reading a whole lot of your stuff that you have out there, and uh, I get the, the Quality Whitetails Magazine, you know, the six times a year as a member of QDMA, so... Uh, we're, I'm real excited to be talking to you. I know that for sure. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Congrats on the new podcast, by the way. Uh, I've been following you guys on Twitter, or we follow each other for a while. And uh, so, yeah, I'm honored to to be on the podcast already. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're definitely one of the uh, first names that, that came up between Talon and I as far as uh, people with some expertise in wildlife that we want yeah. to talk to. Yeah, we're big fans of the articles, and I pretty much read everything you put out, which is 
which is exciting to to see whether it's the growing uh, or even uh, the C- CWD stuff was great too. Yeah, it's uh, well. I, I'm glad y'all enjoy that stuff. We have a good time putting that content out, whether it is you know the fun stuff of deer hunting and habitat management, and and then also you know some of the stuff that we feel as a team here at QMA is our responsibility to talk about. It's not necessarily as fun to talk about CWD and things that are threats to deer hunting, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that when you go home at the end of a work day, you feel like you have done good work uh, for whitetails. So it's it's pleasing and it's fun to be a part of this team, I can tell you that. And so glad you guys enjoyed it. Well, sort of the, the sort of pivot right off of that, why don't we um, start with, if you can just sort of give us a little background of how you got into conservation and how you, uh, you know, what your role is with QDMA and, and sort of what QDMA is a little bit, uh, sort of the Cliff Notes version, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, QDMA, of course, is a nonprofit wildlife conservation organization, much like many of the other nonprofit orgs you guys are familiar with and the hunters would know. Ducks uh, Unlimited in the Turkey Federation, uh, Turkey uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, Rocky Mountain Elk, and many of the others, backcountry hunters and anglers. We're one of those groups. Uh, whitetails are our focus, um, and we were founded about 30 years ago, with or just over 30 years ago, with a mission really at first to bring an educational message to hunters who, at the time, really needed, you know, the average North American deer hunter at that time really needed to learn more about herd management because really we were mismanaging deer herds in this country at that time. We were not taking enough does when we needed to be. We were still putting incredibly high pressure on yearling bucks and so very few bucks were making it to older ages and, and so deer populations out there were really whacked and they needed some help. And so that was where we came from was to help hunters learn how to make different choices at a local level to help deer populations uh, recover from that to help them become more balanced and ultimately so that deer hunters could enjoy better deer hunting. Uh, as time has gone on, we've taken on many other different missions and, and mantles of responsibility uh, when it comes to not just managing today's deer herds, but looking out for deer hunters and pop- deer populations of tomorrow uh, from addressing, addressing threats that arise today, like CWD, like declining hunter numbers and other things. Um, so that's who QDMA is, and, and I'm fortunate to be on the team. I've been here uh, 15 years. I'm a journalist by training, and I uh, started out with um, a local magazine here in Georgia called Georgia Outdoor News as an editor there for nine years. Um, and, you know, when the opportunity came up to join QDMA and, and edit their magazine and drive their communications and, and publications, I jumped at the chance because personally as a deer hunter, um, you know, I love turkey hunting, I love deer hunting, bass fishing, all of it. Uh, but as a deer hunter, I've really always been in the realm of, you know, herd management and food plots and tree planting and things like that uh, have always been my focus. So this really um, as I've often said, getting the job here at Cutie May was kind of like the mothership called me home. So uh, I'm I'm been here 15 years and and really part of a super team here at QDMA, as you guys know from being members and seeing what this whole team is about and what we work work toward. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That uh, I feel like both of us probably would, uh, given the opportunity, be welcoming a jump to work for an organization like QDMA. Yeah, I, I, we'll don't, <laughs> I don't want to speak for Talon, but I know I definitely would. <laughs> that's talking to the education. We're, I don't know. I mean, I know you, we, we got you to come in here, but you probably don't know a whole lot about us, but we're both teachers. Uh, so that education part of it is really appealing to us because by career choice, that's what we do is try to educate as many people as we can. So we bring that aspect into what we're doing as well, uh, just from what we've been trained to do. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, when you have that, that sense or that instinct or that training, being a part of QGMA is, you know, that's a rewarding part of it because we do spend a lot of our time helping hunters learn things that help make them be better hunters, more successful hunters, have better deer and, and healthier deer and better deer habitat. And that, as you know, extends um, beyond deer. Many people may come to our messaging because of deer, but like many of our members, ultimately find out, wow, when you start doing these things for deer, it helps other wildlife too, wildlife that you can hunt and wildlife you don't hunt, but that we all appreciate. So, yeah, it's definitely rewarding to play that educational role and see new deer hunters um, discover the things we all have personally discovered and you guys have discovered from messing around with wildlife management and conservation. Yeah, that's that's, um, definitely... Yeah, like Talon said, this is uh, what you guys do definitely speaks to us on a very personal level. And uh, the reason why we really wanted to have you on is uh, because QDMA is so uh, active in the sort of habitat management aspect of it. And with Arbor Day coming up this year on April 26th, uh, we wanted to get sort of your expertise as far as uh, planting trees. A lot of people are going to be out planting trees and, and in the outdoors uh, trying to do something good for the environment. So what can we do yeah. as far as planting trees to uh, impact uh, the wildlife that, you know, we live with on a daily basis? Yeah, and I'm super excited. It was really excited when I got a message from you that this is what you wanted to talk about because this is really one of my personal passions. Um, you know, people will tell you I've always got something in a bucket growing around my office or uh, my back porch. You know, I'm always – planting acorns and collecting them and dragging them around and, you know, seeding them and planting trees in the winter and going out checking trees I've planted, taking pictures of them. So it's kind of one of my uh, little pet projects is tree planting and always has been. Um, my, you know, dad got me started on our family land in, in Georgia at a very young age. He would order tree seedlings each uh, winter and we'd all go out there together and plant them and, made mistakes along the way, uh, learned a lot of things about uh, planting and growing trees. And then, you know, coming to QDMA and being a journalist and learning from and talking to many of the true experts on this, from forestry experts and and tree experts uh, over the years have added to what I've learned from getting my own hands dirty and um, kind of amassed a a good bit of, of knowledge about this that I've you know gleaned from other people and from just messing with it. So yeah, anyway, I'm I'm excited to talk about this. I'm glad you guys wanted to do it. I I'm happy to uh, to help other hunters and conservationists get involved with trees anytime. Yeah, cuz I I know I have a lot to learn because I just get saplings throw them in the ground and and move on. <laughs> so <laughs> I there's got to be a lot more to it than that and I at least feel like I know like a little bit and that's still all I do. So we're we're hoping to 
really open everybody's eyes up that there's a little more to it than that, especially maybe even that's just what I'm thinking because of my eyes being open. Yeah. Well, really, the truth is, Talon, I mean, there's there's just a, a handful of very basic concepts that if you follow those, you'll have success. It's not that difficult and it's not that complicated, but it's the kind of things that people coming to this new, just like my dad did and I did, can overlook. Uh, or not understand, and as soon as you right. know to avoid that, you're kind of on the right track, and then there's a few pitfalls along the way that you things you don't need to do. So it's really just a few simple concepts that you can give someone in a short period of time and you know, vastly increase their ability to be successful at tree planting for deer and wildlife. So, so with those, what what would be some of those things? Because, like, I'm like a mad, like throw out the masses and hope a couple of them – take you know so what can i do to maybe focus a little bit more than uh that more of these trees will take and and have a better habitat on our property and and uh where i hunt right well the biggest one of the biggest things to me and there's there's a handful of them but one of the biggest and one of the lessons we learned right off is plant trees in full sunlight period um you know we would go out and when i was younger and dad was getting into this you know, you would think, okay, down here in these woods is where we deer hunt. Let's put some a crabapple tree or some fruit tree or some oaks or something down there where we already deer hunt and enhance that area. And we were planting these seedlings in areas where they were already shaded by other trees in many cases. Well, that's pretty much a death sentence to that seedling, or you're simply ensuring that seedling is going to struggle along in the shade of other trees for years and you will die of old age before that tree ever produces anything. So that's one of the first big mistakes we made and one of the first ones to avoid when you do this. If you're going to plant a tree, put it in full sunlight. You really don't have to worry about fertilizer or pruning or anything else with most species if you will just put it in full sunlight. And there's a, a couple of reasons for that is, obviously, trees do better when they've got full sunlight. They grow faster, um, and that prevents not only... Uh, you're preventing other trees from shading them and competing with them for sunshine, but also you're keeping other plants and shrubs and vines and things from growing up around them and near them and competing for that seedling with that seedling for soil moisture and soil nutrients. So basically you're trying to give that tree seedling a monopoly over the resources right there where it stands. But secondly, with any tree you're planting, when, you're, when your goal is to produce mass, whether that is fruit, or acorns, uh, whatever that might be that grows on that tree that you're trying to produce. Um, the more limbs and branches the tree has, the more fruit it can produce. And when you plant a seedling in, in wide open sunlight and, and ample space, uh, it grows up, as you know, and forms a nice big round crown with lots of limbs and branches. And thus, fruit production can not only happen earlier, um, but it can, you know, over time you're producing more fruit. When you plant a seedling or, or any tree, even just, you know, grows naturally out there in an area where it's competing with other trees, um, what do they do? They tend to grow up straight and tall because they're trying to race each other up to get to that spot of sunlight overhead. And you end up with these tall, spindly trees with a few limbs and branches way up at the top. And that's never going to produce many flowers and thus much fruit compared to a tree that you grow in the open that is big and fat and round and has, you know, hundreds and thousands of branches and twigs on which it can produce fruit. So full sunlight, 
uh, is the big thing to remember. There's, there's sort of tip number one when you're planting a tree, full sunlight. Yeah, and that's kind of like mistake number one that we always made. Like you said, we hunt here. Let's throw some crab apples in and for early season and throw a couple oaks in for when it gets later in the season and just hoping they grow. Well, you know where you where do you hunt whitetail? It's thick. So we're not we're not seeing our trees flourish in those areas, and that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah, they got to have full sunlight. And, um, you know, the, one of the other uh, mistakes, too, that comes with that, uh, once you kind of learn that, okay, we need to put trees in full sunlight, uh, there's a couple more mistakes people will make. Um, one of them, and I've done this one, um, and it's one that takes a long time for you to realize, so it's one to, you know, when you're helping someone get started at this, it's one of the first things you want them to know is if you go around a, uh, say, a place you have access to hunt, and you look for all the places where there's sunlight openings where you could put trees. So you just, that's where you, how you do your site selection is, well, if there's sunlight, I'll put a sapling here. And you don't think about future hunting strategy. Uh, you can mess up that way because ultimately, if you scatter um, trees of various species all over a property, well, then the attraction power of that tree, whenever it is dropping fruit or mast or whatever it's dropping, um, is scattered out over a property instead of being concentrated in local spots that allow you to develop a hunting strategy around that location. Uh, so rather than stringing saplings out in random places wherever there's sunlight, you really ought to be trying to go toward a goal of setting up small orchards, uh, literally like food plots um, for trees, where you take, for example, a small number of, you know, a dozen or so, say, crab apples. Uh, or persimmons, or oaks, whatever the species is that you're, you're planning to plant, make a little one-species plot of those trees in one spot and then go off somewhere else at another distance and do another one, do another one. And so what you end up with is these little, little plots of trees that when they're dropping, that attraction is concentrated right there, and that allows you to sort of hunt the focal point uh, of deer movements around that. But also when you've got multiple of these little plots, or these little orchards, you can, as you know, you need to. Everybody needs to rotate their hunting pressure. You can't hunt the same stand over and over and over because your success goes down. Well, by having multiple little orchards, you can rotate around those when you're hunting um, those uh, attraction sources. And then, of course, you'd want to kind of mix that up so that you've got an oak species of one kind over here, and a crabapple orchard over there, and, a, and an apple or pear or a persimmon orchard over here. And that way, all of these species drop at different times. Um, so you're mixing it up up across time. But then in, you know, October when the crab apples start falling, you've got a handful of orchards to choose from to hunt. And then when they fade out and the persimmons come on, you move to that. And then the, the oaks in their various phases and et cetera. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. You, you think mm -hmm. through a long-term strategy of where you're putting your trees and how you're grouping them to develop um, an infrastructure that you can hunt one day. Because if you just scatter trees randomly around the property, that's still good. You're still, you know, having an impact on nutrition and the diversity of the, of the forest there on that property and the benefits for wildlife. But you've sort of uh, shot yourself in the foot when it comes to hunting strategy because you have randomly scattered this stuff across the property and there's less of, in most cases, many times, uh, less of a... Uh, predictable movement pattern by deer around these locations that you can capitalize on. 
that's great information. That's um, I'm going to have to rethink some of the plannings that I planned or thought I was going to do on our property. Um, we so far we've been sort of doing a little bit of a mix of trees and doing just small certain you know little locations where we're making orchards, but it's sort of been a mixed orchard. We might have to that that's that really makes sense what you're saying. So we might have to rethink our strategy a little bit uh, yeah, from that aspect. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, if you mix them all up in one location, then you it's still good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But except that your attraction is going to be across a longer period of time in that one location. So you're you know that's fine. But if you're attracted to hunt that persistently, that one location across more days or weeks or months of the year of each season, you're you're you know that that pressure is building up in that one location. So the more opportunity you can give yourself to move around. I mean, we've all heard this advice. Set up multiple stand sites so that in any given wind, you know, you've got a stand you can go hunt where the wind is right and your access is good and you're not disturbing deer getting in there and you're not building up too much pressure. Well, just apply those same rules when it comes to setting up your orchard plan so that it, you know, fits into that glove of pressure management. That makes sense. Uh, as far as trying to decide what trees to plant, what, how the, you know, what we want to put in a sort of orchard setting, I mean, there are, there's literally thousands of different species of trees out there. How how do we determine what would be best to plant on our property? I've always said plant what you don't have. Um, and so because what you're ultimately going for is diversity. Uh, I'll just tell you this. There is no one golden magic tree that everybody should plant. Uh, when you hear someone telling you that, that here's the, the magic bullet tree, it's probably because they sell it. Um, so <laughs> there is no one magic tree that is, you know, the, the end-all, be-all tree for deer and certainly not in any particular location. Diversity is going to win that fight every time. Um, and, and by that, I mean diversity not only within your oak species, but diversity of different fruit trees as well. And it comes down to, you know, the first question you ask yourself is, what do I not have? So it really involves kind of a survey of your, your hunting area, uh, doing some walking, um, you know, when, and going maybe even if, you, if you're not great yet at identifying tree species, ask a state forester to come out there and take a walk with you and, and help you identify what you've got. And take sort of a inventory. Tell yourself, hey, okay, I've got a lot of white oaks, but I don't have many red oaks or vice versa. Um, I'm finding a lot of persimmons, but I don't see many. Pratt apples or pears or old homestead apples, you know, so run down the inventory. What do you have and, and what do you not have? And then fill in those gaps. So if you've got a property that's already, you know, um, one end to the other covered in white oaks, you don't need to plant more trees in the white oak family unless, you know, we're talking about something in the white oak family that might drop at a different time than the predominant species. Um, you know, and if you're not familiar, your your listeners need to know the difference between trees in the white and the red oak families. Uh, and this is probably a good time to just touch on that. But uh, you guys may understand the basic differences every hunter needs to know between trees in the white oak family and trees in the red oak family um, is white oaks uh, tend to uh, those are tend to be more attractive to deer than red oaks, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so they're generally eaten quicker and attract deer faster. They aren't as attracted to the red oak acorns right off the bat, but the red oak acorns last longer on the ground. And so what ends up happening is um, once the white oak acorns are all gone, um, 
those red oaks that are still out there on the ground and still viable and edible come into play, particularly in winter and, and even into late winter and sometimes even longer, um, that deer will be relying on those acorns long after we're not hunting the deer anymore. So you want both of those families have benefits, and you want to see that you've got species representing both of those families. Um, so, you know, fill in those gaps. Um, if you've got crab apples out there already that you're seeing on the landscape, whether you're seeing fruit or you're seeing the flowers right now while you're out there turkey hunting, um, and you're seeing a lot of that, you probably don't need to plant crab apples. Um, so that's really the key to me is what do you not have and fill in those gaps because there's no need really buying more trees if you've already got that tree out there. Um, and then secondly, look around and, and find out what's adapted to your region. Um, you know, one of my favorite trees here in the southeast is a swamp chestnut oak. Um, that is in the white oak family. It tends to grow in uh, lowlands and swamp uh, river drainages of the southeast, but you would not want to send that tree seedling up to Pennsylvania and plant it in the dirt. It's not going to do well. That's not a species that's adapted to northern climates. Uh, just like, you know, probably if I took some species that's more adapted to the Midwest or northern climates, um, like a swamp white oak or like a bur oak and brought it down here to the deep south in our hot summers and our hot weather and long growing seasons, those trees are not going to do as well. Um, and I've seen that time and time again. You know, I've had uh, people, you know, give me different trees to try. Um, I've got a mulberry in my yard. In fact, I posted on social media about this just the other day. I have a red mulberry in my yard. I'm really not sure where it came from, but it's a different sort of an improved variety of, of mulberry. And it blooms early in my yard every year and almost every year gets burned by a late frost whereas the wild mulberries that are also out of my yard never do that. They never bloom early enough to get burned by a late frost, and they always do fine. So that's, you know, the next thing to consider, what's adapted to your area. Um, and, and if you again, if you need to talk to a state agency or the local tree nursery uh, and, and ask them what do they recommend for your climate zone and your region, go for things that are adapted to those soils and that climate, and you'll always be better off than going way up the country or down the country to find some tree somebody told you was great and bringing it, you know, far from its native dirt and trying to grow it. Yeah, that's something we advocate uh, a lot on our website is is trying to plant things that are native or naturalized to your region, uh, making sure you're not putting some kind of species out there that uh, is going to take over and, and be invasive or uh, you know, you waste your time and, and it dies. Like you said, it, it, either it's not cold hardy or it's not uh, adapted to the long, hot summers of the south or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and you bring up another good point there, and that is the difference between native and non-native. And I'll just say I am always talking about native trees, and I'm suggesting things for people to plant. When you talk about trees that don't belong in North America, uh, don't, don't bother. Don't do that. Um, there are some of those trees that um, – are not terribly invasive in that, like you say, that they take off and tend to take over and, and dominate. Um, but then there are some that are just terrible at that. And the bottom line is, yes, you will find some non-native invasive tree species that have some benefits for our native wildlife. And, in fact, that's how we got in trouble with some of these is some, you know, years and years ago, people thought they were doing the right thing and suggested these trees as good for wildlife, and people went out and planted them. And now we can't get rid of them. So um, always consider native versus non-native. I, I, you know, 
when you're talking about a, a non-native invasive tree that does have benefits for wildlife, the, the problem, the, the, the bottom line is there's always a native species that does the same thing or better and maybe multiple native species that are better alternatives. So always go native and do your homework there and don't plant something that does not belong here on this continent. We've got enough of them already to try to get rid of as it is. Uh, and we're, we're not ever going to win that fight as it is. Don't, yeah. don't make it any worse. Yeah, I feel especially down south. You guys have some. Uh, what is that? The Japanese vine? Is that what that is? Or kudzu? Yeah, kudzu. yeah, yeah. I remember reading something about that. Saying glad. Sometimes I'm glad it gets cold. <laughs> We've got it all, and uh, I mean yeah. every every region has their their non-native invasives, and, right. and um, you know, and sadly, if you start walking around almost any hunting property that all of us. Uh, know about you're going to find some non-natives and, and some of them you'll find um, you know in a worse situation than others not all of them are just terrible you know takeover kind of species but many are um, and when you you know walk around in any wood that have not really been cared for or maintained by somebody you'll find many many species out there that don't belong and that that's even um, you know one of the practices we teach and something you can do when you're when you're interested in trees is go out there and find, for example, your native trees, and you'll often find non-natives nearby that are competing with them for sunlight or soil or, or moisture or whatever. Kill those non-natives. And you haven't bought a tree, you haven't planted a tree, but you've helped a native tree that exists there already simply by removing the non-native competitors. Yeah, and that leads into a good question uh, that seems to be pretty controversial uh, in our country and as uh, a habitat manager myself, I don't understand, but uh, should we cut down trees? Is it okay to cut down trees? I know the answer to this, but I would like to hear uh, your voice tell our listeners whether we should cut down trees or not. Absolutely, you should cut down trees. That needs to be part of forestry and habitat management when you're a deer hunter. I mean, that's just, and I, I know what you're talking about. I run into this a lot. There are deer hunters and not necessarily even old school deer hunters. Um, there are many young deer hunters that think like this, that that have it in their head that to cut down a tree is, uh, you know, that that's you don't want to do that. Uh, and apparently it's because you think, you know, people think, well, deer live in the woods, trees are woods, don't cut down trees because that's where the deer live. And, you know, that's, that's incorrect. Um, if you want to start improving habitat for deer, particularly if you want to plant trees, um, one of the best things you can do is – Remove trees you don't need. Um, make space for ones that are better. Make space for different kinds of cover. Um, you know, deer live in a zone that is from the ground up to about your chin. And if you can walk through the woods of your hunting land and that zone in the understory is empty because it's all shaded by a grown tree, that's not good. Um, you need diversity. You need some grown trees. You need some mature trees that are producing acorns. But you need some areas that are thick in understory grasses and vines and forbs and shrubs that deer hide in and browse on every day of the year. So sometimes cutting trees down is the way you produce that. And sometimes there are trees there on your place that um, are numerous and don't have any benefit for wildlife, uh, deer or otherwise. Some of them can go. Maybe all of them can go uh, and open up that space for species that are uh, have some benefit for uh, wildlife diversity and, and deer nutrition, deer cover. So, yes, 
cutting down and killing trees is a big part of improving deer habitat. It's a matter of knowing which ones you want, which ones you don't need, and making wise selections about those trees you cut. So, yeah, it's not just crank your saw, boys, and go cut down everything you see. Um, <laughs> it is do it uh, in an informed way. Know what tree species you're cutting before you crank the saw. Know why you're removing it uh, and, and the species you're trying to benefit by leaving. You know, sometimes even it doesn't even just come down to one species versus another. For example, let's talk about white oak. You know, white oaks are great trees. We all know they produce an acorn that deer love. Many of us hunt in and around them every year. Uh, but you can have too many white oaks. If you've got, you know, 10, 12 white oak seedlings growing up in, a, in, a, in one small little area all close to each other, um, none of them are ever really going to be big, healthy individual trees that produce well. So look at the space that's available and select some you don't need. Pick the nice straight one, prettiest one, in that batch and kill the others and leave that one that space so that it can dominate and grow up and produce a big, huge, healthy crown that's going to produce a lot of acorns. Because if you leave all those small white oak seedlings competing with each other, none of them are ever going to do well. So, yes, that's a great point y'all are making, that cutting trees, even trees that you might think are, you know, the holy grail of deer hunting like a white oak, Sometimes even cutting white oaks is a good thing for deer habitat. Yeah, so that's kind of like sounds similar to like the, that answer sounds similar to an article you wrote a couple of years ago mm-hmm. about hinge cutting trees mm-hmm. and yeah. doing that in an informed way and not just going through and hinge cutting every tree you see because you feel like the deer need more to eat. Right. And that's kind of, you know, hinge cutting took off and became very popular and we immediately started seeing people, uh, I mean, heck, you can go on YouTube and watch videos of people doing hinge cuts and immediately see some big mistakes, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and it became clear to me from talking to people, a lot of people were hinge cutting trees and couldn't have told you what species that was. They just hinge cut, hinge cut you know, to save their life. They didn't know. Uh, they just thought, well, you hinge cut. And so, no, you've got to, you know, some of the rules, basic rules there are know what tree it is you're cutting um, and why you're cutting and why you're cutting it there. And, uh, and then, of course, you get into the safety question, and I'm seeing people hinge cutting trees that are way too big to be safely hinge cut. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's yeah. another topic we could uh, dive into. <laughs> there's, even you would, when we first started talking about just Arbor Day, you would think, ah, we're just going to talk about putting a tree in the ground. There are so many rabbit holes you can go down in any time you start talking with, with about anything. Yeah, I mean, from an Arbor Day standpoint, when you're talking about trees and forestry on a hunting piece of hunting property, um, you could spend uh, a lot of time with a chainsaw and a map and some planning doing nothing but removing trees so that you're selecting others to fill that space and, and, uh, and be the ones that dominate and never plant a tree, and yet you are shaping doing the same thing you're shaping a future forest that you want to do certain things for deer um so you know sometimes some of us have hunting properties that are sort of blank slates where there's been a clear cut or there's a big open field but you want to convert to your habitat and then planting of course plays a bigger role but many times some of us have access to hunting areas that are um, heavily forested and have not been managed by anyone nobody's made any decisions on steering uh, the growth and the presence of trees in that place. And so whatever came up there was, is what is there. And many times it's not good stuff for deer. It's the species that colonize areas quickly and take off and dominate quickly that, that uh, are there. 
and many of them don't have benefits for deer. So you can spend a lot of time on a property like that removing trees and accomplishing the same thing as tree planting. So to uh, circle around a little bit, because you were talking about, uh, you know, as far as the one of the real big tips for planting trees is uh, making sure you pick an area that has uh, full sun for that seedling. What do you have any other sort of best practice steps for planting trees? Like, what's the the general process we should go through uh, as far as okay, we have a tree we're going to plant. We know we want to plant it here because it's going to get full sun. What else do we need to do to ensure that it is you know we get a, a long life out of this tree and it's productive? Okay, and there's a good point to be made right here because of, you know, based off what you just said about looking for those open spaces, one of the mistakes I see people make many, many times, okay, they've heard, all right, I need open spaces. Well, walk around your average hunting property. What is one of the first open spaces many of us see or have? That'd be an open field, I would imagine. Yeah, field or a food plot. Yeah, we have food plots. Um, Right, and so what I see people doing is, going out into the middle or along the border of a food plot and planting tree seedlings. This is often a mistake. And the reason is uh, what happens is... I'm finding out I do everything wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just doing everything wrong. (laughs) And this comes back to what you just said about how can I ensure these tree seedlings live a good, long, healthy life. What I see people doing is uh, putting trees in the middle of an open food plot because, again, it's full sunlight or, or right along the edge. Again, many times you're thinking, well, A, it's a food plot. I'm already hunting here. A deer are already coming here. I'm going to add some nutrition in the form of some fruit or acorns. But B, it's an, it's an open space I've got. I need to put this tree in full sunlight. Well, here's some sunlight. The problem comes along when you're trying in the future to manage both a food plot and a tree orchard. And what I see people doing is running their disc arrows through that food plot and disking right up next to the tree seedling or once it's older, underneath the limbs and crowns of that tree. And what that is doing is destroying tree roots. Uh, And that is bad. You don't want to do that. You have to, you know, when you say, how can we have good, healthy trees for a long time, that's probably, uh, aside from giving it sunlight, the second most important thing is protecting the roots. You have to look at every tree you plant as kind of a two sides of the coin or or the rather the other half of the iceberg, you might say, where the top that you see is only half of the tree. The rest of it, the other half of it is underground where you don't see it. And both halves are just as critical to the health of the tree. That root system is critical. And if you run disc arrows under there constantly, you know, most of the feeder roots of a tree are right within the first top few inches of the surface. So disking is cutting roots, and that stresses the tree out. It's, it uh, damages the tree. Many times they will recover, but if you do that repeatedly, you're stressing the tree, you're stopping it from growing, it's having to put resources to healing that damage. And sometimes if it's, if it's repeated and intense, intense enough around the tree, um, yeah, you eventually will weaken it and kill it. So combining disc arrows and tree, tree seedlings doesn't work. Don't do that. If you can have, for example, a, a buffer or a strip along the edge of your food plot where your trees are planted and it's a no-disc zone, uh, that's fine. 
but you always have to think about the roots of a tree as about the same size as the, the crown of the tree. And we talk about the drip line, um, and that simply means if you imagine water dripping off the limbs of all of your the branches of a tree, um, look at the footprint of that drip line and, and essentially the shadow underneath the limbs. Well, the root system reaches out about as far as the limbs do, about out to the drip line um, of the, the limbs of the tree. And so you want to protect at least that much space underneath any tree from any kind of disking or other damage. And that would include driving heavy equipment or vehicles underneath that tree all the time. I see this all the time in construction sites where someone's building a new home and they left some existing trees there, but in the process of building the home, they drove in a bunch of dump trucks and delivery trucks and, you know, heavy equipment and parked it in the shade of the tree while the guys were building the house. Well, they get done, they move off the site, and over the process of about a year to more or more uh, that follows, you'll watch that tree show slowly die. And it's because they came in, they compacted the dirt under the tree and damaged and destroyed the root system. Um, so keep that in mind. You've got to protect those roots. And combining trees with a food plot and, and disking that plot is a good way uh, to damage the roots of trees. So just, just give that thought. If you want, It's fine if you want to put a tree in the middle of a food plot, but leave a nice patch of undisturbed dirt underneath that tree where it can have roots and, and you're not going to be disking them. That's, that's a great tip right there. I'm sure uh, there's a lot of people, uh, just like Helen and I, that, that have made that exact mistake not even thinking about it. Yep, just made it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that can be fixed, though. If you've already planted the tree, I don't know how, you know how long these trees you're thinking about have been there, but just from now on, think about that root system and, in your mind, uh, have an imaginary buffer, you know, the no-go zone when you're, when you're disking, uh, and just be careful with that. That's great. So as far as what to plant, uh, is it better to plant a seedling or to plant like a tree that we've pre-started? Like you've mentioned that you have trees and that you've started in buckets and things like that. Um, is there a better one that we should go, a better route for that? or Not that really. Uh, not really. You know, you can you can do them at any age. I know folks that even gather acorns and, and go on walks and take a walking stick and poke a hole in the dirt and drop an acorn in and step on it and move on and sort of, you know, that's sort of the low maintenance method and you never know whether, you know, you've got a seedling out of that. But, um, you know, personally, I like to get them started indoors, uh, get them started in trays or cups if I'm going to do those myself um, and, and get them, you know, kind of get, get a root system on them, get them a, in a cup or whatever. And then, then once they're dormant, uh, and you always, it's always best to plant trees when they're dormant in the winter. You just get better survival with that. Um, and when I say plant, I mean transplant. In other words, something that's been grown in a container, whether you got that from a nursery or you grew it yourself, it's better to transplant that when they're dormant because you get less root damage. Um, and, again, going back to roots, those roots are critical. If you damage the roots in the process of transplanting, that's a setback for the tree, and it's got to recover from that. So planting when they're dormant uh, means less root damage, um, and if you can uh, – whether you grow it in a big bucket or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Generally, with oaks and things like that, what you don't want to do is leave them in a bucket or container too long because they start putting down a pretty big taproot, and if they stay in that bucket a while, you know, that taproot's going to be coiling up in the bottom of the bucket, and that's not really um, good. You want to try to get that out there in the woods before that taproot starts 
filling up that bucket. But, but you know, you can do these yourself, or there's a lot of good nurseries available that really put time and effort into developing great varieties of trees for wildlife. And, uh, you know, you should look at those. There, many of those are, are very affordable. Um, not only, you know, many state forestry agencies have good nursery programs, but you've got companies like uh, Mossy Oak Native Nurseries. And I've been to the Mossy Oak Native Nurseries in Mississippi. That was a, a very uh, fun trip for me and fantastic to get to see that operation there. And they've got a cool place, and they do a lot of great uh, selection. It, it is There's a lot more that goes on beyond behind the scenes than just, um, throw some acorns in a bucket and sell them to somebody, you know, they spend a lot of time picking the parent trees and doing some experimentation with hybridization of, of different trees and, you know, trying to go for seedlings that had characteristics like, you know, better acorn production and faster growth and things like that. So, you know, getting varieties from nurseries are, are, are good ideas. Um, and, again, you know, what I like to do is order them usually in the fall, uh, order them in time to make sure I'm going to get a seedling and they're not sold out, then those are usually delivered uh, to you um, in the winter, uh, and you can get out there and plant them. Sometimes, you know, you usually have a choice between what's called bare root seedlings, and that means that um, through some kind of a system, the seedling in the nursery has been pulled up out of the ground, and you are sent a bag full of seedlings literally with you know, there's no, they're not in a bucket of dirt. They are bare roots in this bag. And the key there is keeping those roots moist until you get them in the dirt. Um, you can do that during the winter because when the trees are dormant, uh, they can uproot them like that and risk less damage to the tree, risk, uh, risk less chance of the tree drying out and dying. Um, so, uh, or you can buy, you know, what's called containerized, where the seedling comes in a small tube or pot of some kind of soil, you know, bound to the roots. What I have found is that you get a little bit better survival on uh, containerized seedlings because you don't have the root damage. You've minimized that root damage. But also at the same time for years, we've been planting bare root seedlings from the Georgia Forestry Commission here in Georgia and had plenty of success with that. So, you know, if, if you order bare root, uh, and they've been removed from the dirt, just, just get them in the dirt quickly as soon as you've got them. If you can't plant the day they arrive, just make sure you keep them in a cool, dark place, keep the bag sealed up, and make sure that those roots stay moist and do not dry out under any circumstances. Um, so that's kind of the process there. You know, you can plant in the summer and transplant trees. If you can do it with containerized, you probably get better success with that, but the particularly with um, bare root seedlings in summer, what you often run into is the tree uh, dies of thirst uh, because when it's active and growing in the summertime, you know, it needs uh, moisture all the time. And during that transplant process, some of the roots may dry out. And when roots dry, they die. And if you they dry out and you put it in the dirt, well, the tree is going to, you know, uh, die of thirst. It can't, with those dead roots, it can't immediately begin to take up the moisture and nutrients it needs because it's the growing season. Again, this comes back to why if you can do it in the dormant season, um, it's, it's generally better. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because right about now is whenever uh, you start seeing a lot of trees popping up for sale at places like Home Depot and, and Lowe's and the home improvement centers. Um, but really, the, the we have found success, uh, the most success whenever we plant our trees uh, before they start budding and when they're in that still sort of dormant stage. 
Yep, yep. You want to go ahead and it's always better to get them in the dirt while they're dormant. So when they wake up, they immediately start acclimating to their new uh, location, new soil, and uh, and taking off from there. Now, one thing uh, that some people do, some people don't do, I uh, just wanted to get your sort of thought on is uh, tree tubes or tree shelters. Uh, are they, you know, they're a little bit expensive, but are they worth the price to uh, put over top of our tree seedlings? They're worth every penny. Um, I would put a tube on every tree if I possibly could. Um, and in fact, usually do. Uh, usually try to order as many tubes um, as I'm going to have seedlings, and we reuse tubes as well. They are well worth the money. And, you know, primary, there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the tube, you know, with a small seedling, that tube sort of acts as a little bit of a mini greenhouse, uh, can shelter it from um, uh, rough weather, can help hold moisture in there. Uh, but the main thing is, is first off, it, it immediately protects that seedling from either deer browsing the seedling, which they will do. Um, and it, when you put a seedling in that tube like that, um, I always like to show people by having them look through the tube and then point it up at the sky. And what you see is, of course, that blue circle of light at the top of the tube. Well, the tree sees that, and it goes for that. And that seedling, because it's in that tube, will then put more energy into vertical growth to reach that top of the tube than it will into branching out. And it won't begin branching out until it's out of the tube. So that forces that seedling to go ahead and get some height on it, which puts the branches and the leaves and everything out of reach of browsing deer and also gets it up off ground level away from grasses and vines and other competitors uh, where, it, and, and I've done this, I have planted trees side by side, same species with and without tubes. And what you see is, you know, one sits there on the ground kind of starting to branch out already and kind of struggles along down low, gets browsed by deer, uh, fights against competitors where the other one, you know, if you put it in a five-foot tube, um, the first year it's going to come out the top of that tube and you've got a five-foot, you know, seedling there versus the other one that's only two feet tall. So it forces it to come on up and then start branching out. It gets it above browsing deer, above competing plants, and really just gives it a great start. And then after that, it protects it from bucks, which will rub them. Because, again, I've seen it. You know, we've planted trees out there, and you know a buck. When he comes along, you know, they tend to prefer some species over others, but almost any, you know, vertical stem like that um, can attract bucks to go, hey, nice place to rub my antlers, and then your seedling's dead. Um, yeah, they don't they don't really seem to uh, understand that we're playing this for their future use. They just uh, really like to they see it and they go, oh, I'm going to use that now instead of eating from it later. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty frustrating when you think, you know, dang it, if you would leave this thing alone, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, the tubes protected beyond that. So I usually what I like to do is leave the tubes on the tree until the trunk at the bottom actually begins to fill the tube and begins to contact the tube because you know you got the tube you have a stake which helps hold the tube up straight so this continues to be a little bit of a support for the tree when you force it to grow vertically like that and come out the top of the tube many times they are sort of at first that main stem is a little bit flimsy a little bit kind of tall and lanky and if you took the tube away right right then that tree might be a little top heavy and might you know sway with the wind or whatever. So leave the tube on as a support, as a protection against rubbing bucks. 
um, all the way until that trunk begins to fill up the tube, then take the tube off. Uh, because once that trunk begins to fill the tube, you've got a tight space in there that's a good place for moisture and um, mildew and viruses and funguses and insects and everything else to kind of collect in there. Um, there's even, I've seen cases of folks that have got, um, what is the moth, the hemlock, is it hemlock woolia delgate that's killing the hemlocks? That um, sounds right, yes. Um, or it might be a anyway some invasive insects that will winter in those tubes once those t that you get those tight quarters between the tube and the trunk. So as long as you got space in there between the tube and the trunk, leave it on there. But once it starts filling up the tube, go ahead and remove it. That that makes sense. Uh, on our property, the uh, seedlings that we've planted without tr without the tubes, we have I'd say around a, a thirty percent success rate. Uh, but the ones that we put in the tubes uh, are anywhere between 60 and 75% success rate. So um, that, you know, definitely shows to us that it's worthwhile to have them on the seedlings if you can. Yep, and that matches some research I believe Auburn University did a few years back uh, where they did essentially what you did and tested this out and found, yeah, much higher survival rates on the trees that were in tubes. So, yes, to answer your question, they're worth every penny. Uh, if you can plant, uh, if you can put a tube on every tree you plant, do so. And to circle back to when uh, you're talking about using uh, buckets or cups to, to get the tree started, uh, is it imperative is it, or uh, at least a, a good idea to try to use some soil from where you plan on planting that tree in that bucket, or is it okay just to use the sort of pre-bagged dirt that, that you can get at a home improvement store? It's fine to use, you know, potting soil or whatever. You know, it, it, if you're, if it's easy enough for you to get the dirt that, that the native dirt that it's going to be living in, that's a, a good idea. Um, you know, eventually the tree is going to have to acclimate itself to that dirt it's going to be living in. Um, so it wouldn't hurt, but but generally I don't think that you're, you know, hurting your survival success by growing it in say potting soil. Um, when you plant the tree, basically. You know, you don't need to really add any additives or peat moss or anything like that. Just dig the hole, put your seedling in there, and backfill with the native dirt. Um, because, again, this tree's got to, from day one, acclimate to that dirt and live there. You're not going to keep supplying it with foreign dirt. So the sooner it gets used to that soil, the better. That's a good tip. Uh, we want to be a little respectful, a little more respectful of your time, and I'm sure you, uh, if nothing else, have some things you want to, to get done after work here. But listen, uh, listen, listen. We're, we're talking about trees. I'll wear you out <laughs> if you let me. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that, and I would love to talk to you for another couple hours. But my wife might be a little less uh, understanding of this, the conversation that we would enjoy having. Uh, so my last question for you is what would be, in your opinion, what would be the worst tree to plant? The tree that you see people planting even in their yards uh, that would be sort of the worst thing for the wildlife landscape? Whew. There's there's a lot of them, uh, Jason, and, and it's hard to say which one is the worst. Um, you know, I would just say do your homework, find out what the non-native invasives are that are problematic in your area and make sure you don't do those um, but I, I would I guess I'd say a couple of a couple of names come to mind mostly because I still to this day see some folks who should know better recommending these trees to hunters and 
the one I'm thinking of in that case is Autumn Olive. Um, are you familiar with that one? Uh, I don't believe we have any uh, have much of it, if any, here in Pennsylvania, but I am familiar with that tree, yes. Yeah, we've got it here in the south. I know it's in the north. I've seen a property in Michigan that I visited one time that was just eaten up with it. The poor per- person couldn't even – you could not clear a food plot or open up any sunlight because the first thing to colonize that space would be autumn olive. And I think the neighbor's property even was like solid autumn olive, and so that ensured that no matter what this person did on their land to control it uh, on the neighbor's land. And the the problem with this thing is, and this is one of those species we talked about earlier where it's like it had some benefits for wildlife. Birds do eat the fruit. Um, And so somewhere back down the line, somebody thought this would be a good idea to recommend to people who like wildlife, so they started planting planting it. Uh, But it does not belong here, and that's the problem is, is it is prolific Birds do eat the fruit, and then they fly off miles away and drop it across the landscape and seed it, you know, readily in other locations, and it spreads like wildfire. It tends to dominate and colonize a site, and pretty soon what you've got is this thick, thick stuff with no nothing but shade underneath it. So, yeah, it's a little bit of cover for a while where a deer could hide, and deer might eat some of the berries, but it is just it, it's problematic. It will take over. You don't want it. And, again, it frustrates me to see some people who are, um, you know, wildlife advisors out there still providing advice to deer hunters saying to plant that. And it's time we stop that. These people have got to quit recommending this plant. In most places, everybody needs to be killing it, not planting it. Um, So autumn olive and many other, you know, non-natives that I can name that, you know, are still – in terms of, you know, things I see people planting in their yard that you can still, to this day, right now, go down to Home Depot or Lowe's or the nearest, you know, big box hardware or whatever it is, and buy this tree is a calorie pear, which is usually sold under the name Brad, Bradford pear. Um, and these I, these are a big problem in the south. I don't know if you have them up north, uh, but a lot of people plant these in their neighborhoods. They have lots of flowers in the spring. In my mind, they tend to stink. The flowers don't smell good to me. They smell kind of like, I think they kind of go with that rotting meat approach where they're trying to oh, attract flies. Um, <laughs> so they don't smell good. The trees are not very pretty. They're sort of small and short and tend to split in high winds. But then they make this tiny, it's called a pear, but it, it doesn't have pears. It has this tiny little berry on it that, again, birds will eat, fly off and scatter, and it spreads like wildfire. And it just, you know, infuriates me that, that, that stores still sell this stuff. Um, to people because I'm out here in my deer habitat killing it as, as fast as I can go with chainsaws and herbicides. It's uh, it's full of thorns. Um, it is, you know, it's the devil tree. And if you just cut it down and don't kill it, it will come back from the stump madder than ever. Um, so, yeah, that's another one that, that I would name as kind of, you got that one that people are planting in their neighborhoods and then you got autumn olive that some wildlife experts are still trying to promote. Um, so, there's a lot of them, but those probably jump to mind as the worst. Yeah, the the two around our area, and one of them's not even a, a tree. It's the Japanese knot knotweed. Uh, it's growing on our riverbanks around here, uh, uh, and yeah. has been very invasive. And then the other one uh, is multiflora rose. Uh, yeah. That that is something that my family's having. Uh, we're having a big battle with on our property, uh, trying to get rid of. It used to be farmland way back in the day, so. Uh, you know, they planted that as the natural barrier for the cattle, so they, you know, couldn't, they didn't have to build a fence. 
Uh, and now it's just a, a, a yearly battle of just trying to knock down as much multiflora rose as we can. Yeah. you got that. You've got buckthorn up in your area that I know is a big problem. Um, so many others, privet and chinaberry and, like you said, kudzu. And, I mean, the list goes uh, on and on and on. But, uh, yeah, like I said, many times just killing those things is, you know, is good for the, the habitat there as it is you know, planting new trees. Well, Lindsay, we really appreciate having you on uh, and, and talking with this. Uh, I'm with you. I could talk for another couple hours. Uh, <laughs> but, unfortunately, uh, the family issues uh, sort of come into play a little bit there with time spent. Actually, uh, Talon had to sort of sneak out of here, too, because he had to go pick up his uh, two-year-old son uh, from daycare. But uh, do you have any sort of parting thoughts for the listeners, anything that maybe we didn't bring up that you would you want to make sure that they're aware of? No, um, we've got. A, I have an article that I wrote a few years back uh, for QDMA.com called uh, 15 Tips for Tree Planting or Lives, I believe. And, and, you know, I would say for more information, look that up uh, and, you know, tell your listeners, check with their state forestry agency or uh, Mossy Oak Wildlife nurse, uh, Native Nurseries and some of those other groups out there that produce tree seedlings and, and learn more about it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's very enjoyable. And um, and I would say, too, if you're into that kind of thing, that kind of deer habitat improvement, uh, we would hope you would consider becoming a member of QDMA. We're a nonprofit organization, and, and by supporting us with your membership dollar, uh, we can achieve our mission for the future of deer hunting while sharing with you educational information like what we've talked about today. So I'd appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I know Talon and I can definitely attest to the amount of educational material uh, that you can find on the QDMA website and uh, what you can find in the Quality Whitetails magazine when you become a member of QDMA. The the benefits definitely outweigh the, outweigh the very nominal cost of, of becoming a, a yearly member of QDMA. I'm glad. Thanks. I'm good to hear, good to hear that. Thank you very much. So, so, Lindsay, thank you for coming on with us. Uh, good luck in your, your upcoming planting season and uh, the hunting season in the fall. You too, Jason, and really enjoyed being on the podcast. Good luck to you guys with this, and uh, let us know how we can help anytime. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. And that'll do it with our interview with Lindsay. I really want to thank him coming on. Talon, what'd you think? Uh, I learned a lot. I learned more than I even thought I could have. I learned that I was doing a lot of things wrong. Yeah, that, that was my big takeaway <laughs> from it is I, I've learned that there's a lot of stuff I'm doing that is not right. Yeah, yeah, not even close. No. Like, because it, when the one thing, like, looking in the sun, like, oh, you got to put them in the sun. That's the one that got me. Yeah. Like, you know, I plant trees along, you know, the field edge mm-hmm. where we're either making a food plot or, like, even a farmer's field edge. And those trees essentially aren't standing a chance. No wonder they're not growing. Right. It, you know? th- that's something I'd say for us that we've been pretty good at. Uh, we, we only have one field on our property. So when we're planting trees on that field edge, we're doing it on the field edge that receives the most sun. Yeah. As opposed to right up against trees that are, you know, getting the, you know, right. blocking out that sun. So we've been trying to sort of do it on the far side. Uh, I think we stumbled on that by happenstance just because we decided to plant trees there to, so people can't see into the field from the road, um, but it just sort of worked out for us. Yeah, yeah. Turned out to that. So what would you say is uh, the most profound thing that, that he said, other than the sun? Uh, 
Other than the sun. Other than the sun. What was the oh, one man. thing what, that was like? I came up with the sun thing, and now you want me to come I up want with you to come else? up with one more thing. Yeah, <laughs> I want you to come up with one more thing. Jeez. Uh, I'll tell you what. I, one thing I could have done is I could have listened to him for another hour and a half. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I think I talked too much when I was talking <laughs> to him. I just wanted to sit and, li- and listen to it. Um, just the, the, the knowing the difference in trees when you're like managing your property and like cutting down a tree is just as good as uh, cutting down a bad tree is just as good as planting a good tree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something even, even cutting down a good tree is beneficial if there's another good tree right next to it. Right. Yeah. So that, that I agree. That's a, that's a huge one. Uh, for me, it was the not turning soil over underneath the crown of the tree so you yeah. don't ruin those roots because right. Uh, right now like the orchard that we have it's still um, very very early on so the roots aren't you know spreading out or anything that far underground but uh, we have been planting uh, a food plot amongst those trees mm-hmm. uh, now just knowing that hey in the future here pretty quick uh, within the next probably five or six years we're not going to be able to use our cultivator Right. in there because it was going to be ripping up all the all the roots all the roots so that was that was a good reminder i remember reading an article about that uh on qdma's website so that was a good reminder yeah. about that uh and i'm just like you i i could have talked to him for yeah. for another couple hours um he's, he's already offered to come back on if we want to talk to him uh, so i hope he does uh we will there's not a hope we yeah. will get him back yeah. on <laughs> there's definitely more that we're uh going to be talking to him about so uh, I hope. Uh, well, yeah, maybe some of those other guys over there. Too. Yeah, maybe some of the other guys. That's that's definitely an organization that that knows how to get the positive word out of habitat and things like that. Yeah. So we're definitely going to try to get them on as much as we can. That would. I don't want to make this into a QDMA podcast, but at the same time, the more we can get them on, I think the yeah. better it will be for everyone listening. Yeah. So real quick, everyone listening, just uh, the normal PSA at the end of all these episodes. Uh, if you could on your listening platform of choice give us a rating and a review and uh see you next week Mm -hmm.